0: Hey, everyone, we decided to re-air one of our top episodes of 2022 this week, and we know we have a ton of new listeners, so you may have missed this one. I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you back very soon with a bunch of new episodes. Hey, everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful, self-made women who share honest stories and lessons, of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal balances using a whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Nicole Gibbons, to our show today. Nicole is the founder of Claire, the only black-owned paint brand in the U.S., and is a favorite of Jessica Alba, Maria Sharapova, and Nate Burkis, to name a few. Before pursuing interior design, Nicole spent a decade managing PR for one of the world's largest retail brands, Victoria's Secret. Although she was excelling in her career, Nicole felt uninspired and was looking for a new outlet for her creativity. She started working on a decorating blog on the side that ultimately, in time, gained serious traction and led her into the path of interior design. After working as a designer and establishing herself as a voice in the industry, Nicole decided to do another career pivot and had a yearning to build something bigger that could potentially become a household name. When she was working with clients, she always noticed the hassle around picking paints and saw an opportunity to disrupt the very outdated paint industry and create a direct-to-consumer business that makes the entire process a way easier experience. Nicole has been featured in top media outlets such as HDTV, The Rachel Ray Show, Good Morning America, and Oprah Winfrey's own. She's also raised venture capital from the backers of Warby Parker, Casper, Peloton, and more. We talked to Nicole today about the power of patience when it comes to building your business, how to think about your finances before you take the leap, how she raised money and built a tech business with zero connections to start, and so much more.
1: Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm excited. There's so much to talk to you on your background, you know, from your experience in the corporate world and serial entrepreneurship experiences you have. Before we go into your story, I actually want to talk about something at a higher level. You know, you call yourself an all-around hustler. And as you've now gone down this world of entrepreneurship, I'm sure you agree confidence is so key, right? With any big leap you do. From your perspective and your own journey, why do you think that, you know, what advice do you have for anyone who is looking to take the leap and doesn't really have that confidence to pull that trigger?
1: Yeah, I would say... Honestly, I don't think anyone's ever going to have full confidence, right? There's always a chance that whatever you're going to embark on might fail. And that's reality, but that's also the risk of entrepreneurship, right? So, you know, it's not about being 100% confident. It's about making like a really calculated decision. I think in my case, I made a really calculated decision and really just betting on yourself. I think that and a real conviction in what you want to build or what you want to create that is the confidence that you need, right? It's more conviction than confidence that's required to take the leap. You have to believe enough that what you want to build is going to be a valuable brand, product, service, whatever it is. And if you believe enough in that, you should be able to make it happen.
0: Yeah. And I'm excited for your story because you're right. You know, there's a way that you can hedge your risk and we'll talk about the way you did that in different jumps you've done because a lot of people on the face of it might look at you and say, Nicole, like, how did you go from a stable corporate job to starting your own company and then leaving a successful company and starting another company? So I'm excited to jump into it because there's so much for us to dig in here.
1: Yeah. It's crazy to reflect back and think that I have had these so many pivots, these different lives.
0: I love it. Well, you know, I want to start from the beginning. You know, you grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. And I know your dad always told you since you were little, at some point, you're always going to be working for yourself. You ended up going down the world of corporate America, did quite well. So I'd love to kind of hear more about your career journey and life before entrepreneurship. Yeah,
1: I worked in PR at a big fashion retailer. I worked for Victoria's Secret for almost 10 years. And it wasn't even that like, I just wanted to do PR so badly. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had explored a bunch of internships. PR was fun enough. When you're fresh out of college and you're 21, I didn't feel pressure to figure out my whole life. Then I think a lot of younger students do, you know, when you're graduating you need, to, or even when you're in school, you have to pick the perfect major, you know, graduate and know exactly what you're going to do for the rest of your life. But in reality, we're not from the same generation of our parents or grandparents where you get a job at 18 or 21 and you keep that job for 60 years. Like, we live in a world that's so much more fluid. So I think even, you know, at the age that I was, I always had this kind of maturity to understand that life is going to evolve. And what I do now isn't what I'm going to need to, isn't what I have to do 30 years from now. So I just chose a career path that I thought would teach me some good skills that would be applicable for entrepreneurship and other areas of my life. And that would I would enjoy doing as a young 21 year old in New York and I was very interested in fashion and loved the whole fashion New York scene. And so I I ended up getting a fashion PR job.
0: Yeah, and I know you've talked about it in another interview, a few years into that job, you knew that this was not going to be the place that you were going to be in long term. But yeah. you stayed within the company. And I think this actually might resonate with a lot of people. You stayed there for you know a few more years, or maybe six, seven more years. And you started a side hustle or side passion project. I'd love for you to talk about that because so much of your life pivoted from this side hobby you were doing when you stayed in your corporate job.
1: Yeah, I was at a place where I was interviewing for other PR jobs. And what I realized is when you start a new job, you have to be putting in 110%. And I felt like I was in a place where I had a lot of autonomy, I was trusted, I had a role that felt secure. And so I could either start over somewhere new where you have to learn a lot and prove yourself and put in 110%. Or I could stay in a place that was comfortable that gave me a little bit more flexibility to do some other things on the side mostly because i was very confident and secure in my role in my day job right so i set up a blog that was the first starting point and the blog wasn't even a business at that point this was before blogs were monetized blogs were just places on the internet where you shared your thoughts and there were no blog ads or anything so i just started yeah, no blog influencers ads. no influencers i mean it was we're talking about 2008 here it was like people either had you had blogspot or TypePad or one of those like really early blogging platforms. And, you know, I started just talking about all the things that inspired me in the world of home and decor. Then I set up an LLC, honestly, mostly because I wanted to be able to get discounts for myself, for my own <laughs> home. Less, really less out of a desire to like start a business. But it was sort of like, I'll set up an LLC so I can get discounts for myself and kind of dabble and get my feet wet. And it sort of evolved from there. I realized that I really did enjoy helping people with their spaces. And I was doing like teeny tiny projects for friends and friends of friends. Half the time wasn't even getting paid, but it was a really good experience. And, you know, I spent my time for about five years side hustling, building my confidence and learning the design trade, learning how to operate a business and g- gaining enough confidence to then take the leap to to do my thing full time.
0: And I'm curious, you know, so you had this passion for interior design, I know your mom was in this world as well, so I'm sure you grew up in this space. And- You know, when you were just writing and starting this blog, like you mentioned, at that time, it wasn't a thing. Being an influencer wasn't a thing. There wasn't influencer marketing opportunities per se. When did you realize that, you know, this could be a good opportunity to potentially start a business? Did you have that in mind when you were starting the blog or was it a few years in you realized? No,
1: the blog was 1000% just a creative outlet. Literally none of my friends cared about design. No one in my life. I had no one to nerd out with about like furniture and decor. And like, that's really why I started the blog because I became a part of other blogging communities and found people on the internet that, you know, loved the same things I did. And that was really cool. And so that's really why I started blog. But I did know, you know, being a publicist, I really understood, even though it was the early days of blogging, that this is a platform that could have the ability to help me build a personal brand. And that's how I thought about it. one So it was sort of like, this blog will help me establish credibility. But initially, this was back before people were put, put names on blogs. I was anonymous. I blogged anonymously for at least more than a year. I didn't even put my name on it because I was afraid that people at work would find out. You know, no one knew who I was. I was just this mysterious person. My blog was called So Soho. It didn't even have my name on it. And then after a while, I was like, screw it. This is a platform. Like My blog is getting traction. Let me put my face out there and my name out there and really start building a personal brand. And that's what I did.
0: I love this. And I think it's so important to hear this story because, you know, doing something that you love on the side and that passion, having that creative outlet just brings you so much joy in your life and you never know where things will take you. You know, just like this podcast did it during COVID because I missed a connection with other female entrepreneurs and I was early in my own business. And, you know, fast forward, whoever thought I'd still be doing it. So I just love stories like that because you never know, you know, where it'll take you down the line. And another thing that stands out about your journey is, which I love actually about a lot of your moves in your life is the power of patience, right? Like you mentioned five years, right? Doing this blog, talk about consistency, talk about how you really enjoyed it. At what point did you think, okay, I now have, whether it's enough saved or I now have enough confidence to leave that job. Talk to us about how you built that confidence and set up that pad for yourself when you were officially taking that leap.
1: Yeah, well, I think over those five years, I learned a lot and I had to just reach a point where it was sort of like, I think I was also inspired by a lot of other designers who were self-taught because I think initially I had this sort of chip on my shoulder of like, well, I didn't go to design school. I don't have a formal education in design. So how, do, how am I going to ever have like enough credibility and be taken seriously? And over those five years, I just met so many people. I was really immersed in the design world. And I talked to so many really seasoned, established designers who I admired and loved who were self-taught. So I reached a point where I realized I have a good enough design instincts and great taste I've learned enough just from immersing myself in the world of design. It's almost like the 10,000 hour rule. I spent every free ounce of my time, even before I started the blog, reading things about design, researching, consuming content. Like I was way more, I think, knowledgeable than I gave myself credit for. Mm. And at the point when I realized that, I think that's when I kind of gained a little bit of confidence. And I also felt like, You know, I'm a problem solver and I can figure anything out. So I'm like, anything I don't learn, I will figure it out. And anything I'm not an expert in, I can bring other people in to help. Like one thing that I never did or never really mastered, which I wish I could have, but I I never really mastered drafting. I took the drafting course so I could kind of understand the basics of how to read a floor plan and how to, you know, whatever. But I was never like that good at it. So I always outsource my renderings and my floor planning because I could have done it myself, but it would have taken me three times as long and probably been half as good so that was always something that I outsourced. And aside from that, you know, so much of design is project management, which was something I was very good at. You know, in my PR job, I managed massive events with multiple moving parts and doing a design project was easy. Like I managed much larger budgets in my day job than what I was managing for most of my client projects. And so I felt really confident in my project management skills and that was enough. And then, and then the money piece wasn't really important. I needed to have enough money. So that if I didn't make a lot in the first year or so, that I would still be all right. And that's scary. I saved up enough, luckily. And so by the time I took the leap, I felt confident enough with where I was financially to be able to kind of coast off savings if I needed to and whatnot. And and I ended up having to do that. The first year, I didn't make very much money at all. I did, did, you know, my first big design project that was published was for someone who's kind of a friend. And I basically charged her very, very little. I passed on like 100% of my discounts to her. But the project ended up being a fantastic portfolio builder and she's someone who I still have an amazing relationship with to this day. So no regrets there, but I definitely wasn't making a lot of money in that first year.
0: Yeah. And I love that because there's a couple of things that stand out. You know, you didn't go to quote unquote formal design school, but you connected with other people who had similar backgrounds to you and were able to make it. So they would just served as a good example for you of what's possible, which I'm sure was super helpful to take the leap. And also, you know, savings, right? I did the same thing. I saved about two years worth, right? Just to give myself a shot. And I think that gives you a peace of mind to take this big risk and you can somewhat sleep at night. It's still kind of scary, right? When you don't get that like consistent income and paycheck, which you're so
1: used to. It's so scary. And you're used to not only getting a consistent paycheck, but one that's substantial enough to cover your bills. And then you get these sporadic paychecks, which may or may not even like float your month. Like if that's a very nerve wracking feeling, but again, Mm -hmm. you're betting on yourself, right? And a lot of people wouldn't be comfortable enough to month after month dip into their savings and whatever but I felt really confident that in the end like my end game because a lot of a lot of entrepreneurship no matter what type of business you're starting is a marathon not a sprint right and so that patience is a virtue you really have to like depending on what you're doing you really have to kind of like earn that privilege of like having the luxury to not have to worry about money it doesn't happen overnight you know some people are lucky to have their businesses pop overnight but like for most of us, we have to work really hard at building them, and that's what I did.
0: Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use, we make it list for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. Yeah. I mean, and even when your business is doing well, you know, you're investing in hiring. So you're not necessarily like taking the money for yourself, which is something I talk a lot about with all the women on my podcast. So it's just a pretty, it's pretty amazing that, you know, at such a young age, you knew that concept and you were really betting on yourself because I know that could be intimidating for a lot of people. And, you know, I've heard a couple of interviews where you've talked about how, and I don't know if this is maybe from your young age, but you've really tuned into your gut or signs from the universe. You know, looking back at That time when you were starting your interior design firm and you went all in, were there any signs that kind of gave you that check mark or pat on your back that, you know, you're in a good place?
1: Yeah, there were always these little things. Like I remember when I left my day job, like that same week. I was trying to get, I'd been trying to get my domain name for Nicole Gibbons for a very long time. And it was bought by some domain squatters. You know, people just like buy up names. I don't know how someone got my name, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Nicole Gibbons at some point, he did something notable. But previously, I just never saw it be worth, but it didn't feel worthwhile enough to pay all that money for it, for what was being asked of it. And so I always use some other variation of, of my name in my domain. And the week that I left the job, my domain name was available through a GoDaddy buyback service. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. And it was not a crazy amount of money. It was like a few hundred dollars versus like 10 bucks or whatever. But that was way better than what it was being sold for before. So immediately I snapped up my domain name and that seems silly, but it was just like a sign. I'm like, everything's going to work out. Things just kind of fall into place sometimes. And that little signal was very reassuring. And there were a lot of little things just like that that ended up happening, you know, people who were placed in my path who, who just kind of like handed me an opportunity and that opportunity became the thing upon which the next opportunity was found. And so, yeah, I think there is a certain amount of like, maybe I'm a little hokey, but the universe sends you signs and like you, you follow them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm all about it and I know it sounds crazy. You know, there might be people listening who think that's very woo woo, but even in my own entrepreneurial journey, especially when things are so unknown, it's like having faith and really tuning into those signs. I've seen it in my life. You know, like you've talked about, someone will cross my path that I've been having issues with about some problem. They're able to help. It's just these little things. that give you the boat of confidence to keep going in this very long marathon. So I just love hearing that story because it's just a little, Little sign that, you know, it, it only motivates you to go to the next step and it's helpful. And we'll talk about, you know, your next business and a few signs in that business as well, because I think it's fascinating. But, you know, and a question that I want to get into is so you finally start making money by year three, year four, I believe to the point where it was even more than your corporate job. And a lot of people would stay, right? I mean, it's tough to build something from scratch and make that money that's sustainable for yourself. You're finally paying yourself. But this was a time where you wanted to do another pivot. So talk to me more about this moment in your life and what really sparked within you to kind of start back from square one.
1: Yeah, honestly, I'm so crazy. <laughs> you have to have a lot of blind optimism to like do these kinds of things because it wasn't that I was just gonna start another business. It was like, I'm gonna start a venture-backed startup. You know, I chose like the most ridiculously possible path, which is to try to build a business and grow it at a pace that's not normal and tackle an industry that is so massive that is so the opposite of who I am right it's like dominated by white men here I am this like black woman who's young trying to take over this hundred million dollar plus market who believes they can do such a thing you know so you have to have a lot of blind optimism and I think when I started or when I pivoted to doing interior design, I knew that I didn't want to be an interior designer forever. I aspired for something bigger than that. I kind of really admired Marcus Stewart and how she built her business model. And I didn't necessarily want to emulate that exactly. But this idea that I could take my name and my aesthetic and build it into something so much bigger that can really scale so that so many more people can buy into my aesthetic beyond just like the few select people who can hire me as a designer. You can only scale yourself so far when you're doing a service business. And so... You know, just this idea that, you know, across media and products, you know, there could be a much bigger opportunity to build my brand. And when I started researching opportunities, though, I really became obsessed with this idea of direct-to-consumer and finding a niche within home that applied well to that kind of direct-to-consumer model. And that was the initial thinking. It was like, what kind of business isn't online yet in home that I could like really start there, but ultimately be building omni-channel brands? So that was one of the things that I really admired about Martha, how she really built her brand at Kmart, which people thought she was crazy for because Kmart was, you know, perceived as like low quality or whatever, but it was a brand that, or a retailer that was accessible to every household in America at the time, you know? And so I had ambitions of building a mass market brand. I had this light bulb moment around paint. I'm like, this is genius. The paint industry is stodgy. They're not serving consumers in the way that they deserve to be served. Shopping journey for paint is terrible. Um, I immediately thought that I was the one who had all the insights to solve these problems. I immediately thought through all the different ways I can make the paint buying journey easier. And then it was sort of like, okay, now how do I actually do this? Like these ideas are here, but how do I actually execute and turn it into a real business? And so I spent a whole year doing that on my own, figuring that out. You know, in 2017, I decided to take this idea that I came up with the year prior and actually like see what I could make of it. And again, I didn't go all in immediately. I sort of said, let me take some time off to explore it. But then after about a month, I was really all in. Because again, I kept seeing signals and signs and I had some really strong votes of confidence. And then in addition, just with my insights in home, I really felt like this was a business that the market needed as an interior designer, as someone who works so closely with people who are in the process of upgrading their homes. I really believe that this is a business that would solve real problems for people. So far it has been. So. Yes.
0: Uh. No, for sure. And it's interesting. I actually did not know that the idea kind of came about a year before where you were doing research and really thinking about, I believe, like the supply chain and really every single aspect of the business model. And then a month before, you know, you, you quit your job to really go all in. So tell me more about those signs from the universe. I know there was two really pivotal meetings that you had, which really like gave you the vote of confidence, like I'm going to quit my job and go all into this idea.
1: Yeah. And it wasn't even about because I it was, it was I was running my own business at that point. It was more like pivoting, but I thought maybe it would be a more natural progression versus like, all right, I'm just going to do this for the rest of the year. I didn't necessarily expect that right away, but I was excited enough that I made that decision. But yeah, so the first, you know, I decided basically in January that I was going to see what, what's up, see what I could materialize here. And in February, the first week in February, I had two meetings. One was a cold outreach to someone who works in the R&D space in paint. And she happened to be a Northwestern alum, which is where I went to undergrad. She got her chem PhD there. I just reached out and I said, Hey, I have this idea for this business. Would you be open to talking to me about paint? Learn about paint chemistry. I got lots of questions. Here's my background. Let me know if you're open for a call. And she was like, sure. I'd love to chat. We hopped on the phone one of the first things she said to me, I feel like I tell the story all the time now, but she was like, you know, I know every single ingredient in a can of paint. Even I hate shopping for paint. So I think you're onto something. Else. And I was like, okay, if this person who spent her whole career basically developing paint formulations and raw materials, like she probably knows what she's talking about. And she knows the industry close enough to, to validate that this would solve a real problem. And so that's kind of, That was the first vote of confidence. And then that same week, I was also at the time a member of the wing, which is all women's co-working space. And the wing was doing office hours at the time where you could sign up to talk to someone about different topics. And so I signed up for 20 minutes to talk to a VC, you know, a woman named Susan Line. She's great. Yeah. Susan's amazing. I didn't have anything but like a deck or not. It was, I didn't have a deck. I had a one pager. It was basically like an outline of my idea. And Mm -hmm. I met with her and I said, Hey, have this idea for business? Here's my background. Here's how I think I want to go about doing it. What advice do you have? And I know I need to raise capital. I have no idea how to do this because I don't come from a friends and family network where I can get you know half a million bucks from daddy and his friends or whatever, like other people might. And so I knew that I had to go out on my own. And so I was asking her for advice on raising capital and just going about building business. And she gave me some really solid advice. But more importantly, her vote of confidence was telling me that she wanted to hear my pitch when I was ready. Mm. So I felt like if this is one VC who's intrigued enough by the market and the opportunity, who actually wants to hear the pitch when I have my stuff together, there would probably be other VCs who would want to hear it too. And so I just, at that point, just that one meeting with her saying, I want to meet with you again when you're ready. I just felt like I can do this. that was it.
0: One thing that is... Pretty common, I feel like, throughout your entire life is your emphasis on networking and putting yourself out there and meeting people and sending those cold emails. I'd love for you to just talk about the importance of networking because I think it's critical in like anyone's journey, whether you're an entrepreneur or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I literally just had to do something today where I put myself out there. and I, And I had to tell myself literally the worst that can happen is the person is still not interested, right? And what I've learned is that relationships are everything, no matter what business you're in, no matter what industry, whether you're an entrepreneur or you work in corporate America, the relationships that you build can remain with you your entire life. I have contacts from early in my career that I'm still in touch with who have been helpful every step of the way. And I think for me, I've always understood the importance of relationships. And also I think the training and skills I built as a PR person, like right, like your whole job as a publicist is... Building relationships with media and the, the better your relationships, the better your output and your outcome of your your stories and the fruits of your efforts. And so I've always applied that, you know, in every aspect of my life. I've tried my best to never burn bridges, maintain good relationships, stay in touch as best I can, which I'm not always the best at it, but like, you know, I try. And also to pay it forward. When people need things from me, I try as best I can to reciprocate. And I think you never know. A, when you'll need someone, you, know, you never know when they'll need you and how those synergies can, can like overlap in wonderful ways on both ends. And, and yeah, I just really have put a lot of emphasis in just relationship building in general across my career. And I think it's helped me get where I am today.
0: It's great to hear that you're, you know, even to this day, you're still putting yourself out there because it's vulnerable, right? You could get rejected, quote unquote, someone might not be able to respond to you, you know, maybe they're busy or whatnot. It's great to hear. It's still something that you kind of put yourself out
1: for and still network.
0: It's important at any stage of your career.
1: Yeah. And whether you're fundraising, whether you're reaching out to someone that you don't know cold for advice, the worst they can say is no or not respond at all. And there's zero consequence for your life in that, right? Exactly. One person's response or lack thereof is not going to make or break your, your life, your career, or your business idea. Just keep going. But that one time you put, there, put yourself yes. out there could land you the opportunity that changes everything. So. Exactly. I love there. that.
0: So going back to, you know, you have this idea, you talk to Susan, who was a VC. And, you know, initially you, you've mentioned that early on, you knew that this was going to be a VC backed business again, right? You've talked about how your background wasn't in that. You didn't grow up in an environment with a ton of friends in VC or a network. So tell me, you know, where did that idea come from and how did you immerse yourself in that world?
1: Well, frankly, I just, I knew that this is not a, this was a capital intensive business. It's not the kind of thing I could bootstrap. Didn't have enough money to, to start a paint company of my own finances. I didn't know how else to go about raising capital. But when I looked at other business models, I learned that so many companies raised to be a venture. And so as I started like just kind of researching and looking at how other companies were funded, it just honestly maybe there were other ways to finance my company in the beginning. I have no clue. But venture, mm-hmm. as challenging as it as it is, again blind optimism and naivete. I guess I just felt like okay, these companies could raise money. You know, you're hearing about kids in their dorm room going out to Sequoia and getting like 20 million bucks to start a company seemed like I can do it you know just I think it's just having this like this crazy belief that you can do anything will get you so far
0: And where do you think that came from? Do you think it's your upbringing or because you have had that throughout your whole life, which I love? So where do you think that came
1: from? I have no idea. (laughs) When I look at my parents, I'm very unlike them in many ways. I think that I've always just been incredibly independent and a really independent thinker. So I guess it's just sort of innate. I honestly don't know. I wish I could say, like, oh, my dad was just like that or my mom, but I, I don't know where it came from. So
0: you had this idea, you know, going VC, you're going to be like those stories that you're reading about. So what was your first step? Like, how did you even get in that orbit of investors?
1: Yeah, because I was in that orbit zero. Like I had no contacts. (laughs) I didn't know anyone in VC. So first I just started doing research. Who are all the funds out there? And, you know, I had followed startups for a very long time, like from the days of Napster. I remember being so inspired by that story because at the time, and I still am like, I've always been very interested in music and the music industry. And so when that company came out it was basically a kid in his dorm room kind of you know he was like 18 years old or whatever we were basically the same age Sean Parker and myself and I remember being like this kid is my age and he just created this industry transforming tool to share music and this is incredible and I think around that time is when I kind of started just not following VC deeply, but taking names, taking mental notes. You know, I remember writing a Evernote because I was an early adopter of Evernote. I remember writing an Evernote, like VC funds I should reach out to at some point in the future. And there were like names on there. And one of the names was first round capital. And I still have that Evernote. It was from 2011, I think. Wow. And, you know, call it six years later, I ended up First round ended up being our bigger, biggest investor in, in our kind of pre, pre-launch, kind of pre-seed round. And so again, signals maybe, I don't know, but I just re- started researching who all the funds were, who invested in companies that were like mine and consumer, who works at the, those funds, going on LinkedIn, seeing who I was connected to, talking to anyone I knew who was connected to anybody in BC for advice. I went out to a conference in San Francisco, met a ton of people there. Again, like kind of hustled my way into this like very closed inner circle world of BC because the world of BC is very opaque. Okay. It's yeah. kind of a boys club of people who all went to like the same schools, Wharton, Stanford, worked at Bain. It's like a lot of the same types of backgrounds, right? And so mm-hmm. I really kind of had to like elbow my way in there. And with especially like me being who I am, you know, the data points around Black women and Black people in general and diversity in BC are really sad. Most minorities do not have a good shot at raising venture capital. And when you're a black woman, it's almost impossible. If you look at the actual data, it's less than a percent. But yeah, I just kind of, back to being an all around hustler, I just sort of hustled my way into that circle through networking, perseverance, putting myself out there over and over again, not being afraid to fail and not feeling beat down by rejection. And I think that's kind of what ended up helping me kind of get far.
0: Yeah. And, you know, talking about rejection and those stats, like, I guess I have a couple questions based on everything that you said. Like, did you know the stats
1: were that low when you were going into it? Or did you have blind optimism? I knew the stats. And you knew the stats. Because when I was researching BC, it was sort of like, came up and I always have to think of myself as an outlier. Sure, two-tenths of one percent of Black women receive extra dollars, but I'll be in that two-tenths of one percent. And that's, again, back to the Blind optimism, and and sometimes too, I was like, I don't want to make it sound like I'm so overconfident because I also have so much self doubt all the time. And but I really believed in this bu- business that I'm building, right? And I knew that I knew that Claire needed to exist, and I had so much conviction in that that like that was all I was laser focused on. I didn't care about anything else. Nothing you could say. If I pitched you and you told me it was a silly idea, I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm you know, the next person who can see the light, and that was just my attitude. And I think that's the like relentless kind of attitude that you have to have as an entrepreneur to to really like do crazy things and solve big problems.
0: Yeah. And I think it goes into, you know, your background being in interior design and really taking the time to research, like what is your business and what's your business model? Like that gave you the confidence to walk into all those rooms and really stand by what you're building. Because I think sometimes if you're not really sure yourself, like that's going to come off when you're meeting with really anybody. So the fact that you really were passionate about what you were doing, you knew there was a big opportunity there. That really put you in situations where in the case of rejection, like I'm sure it didn't Hurt as much. I mean, still never amazing, but really allowed you to overcome that and just continue pushing. And I'm curious, how long did it generally take you to fundraise? Like, how long were you focused on getting this first
1: round done for you to really start the business? It was about three months. And that sounds fast. And I think it's funny because I, I tell people this all the time the further along you get, the harder it becomes to fundraise. Unless you're in- I've <laughs> heard. But when you don't have a lot to show, right? you're just selling your vision, your idea, they're investing in you. And I think I told a really good story and I'm tackling a market where you could do the research and see that the pain industry is massive and that these companies are massive and no innovation and all of that. So I think it wasn't hard to convince people that this company solved a problem and that the market opportunity was massive. And then once you're up and running, then you have a lot to prove. The numbers have to back it up. You have to show that you can execute. And, you know, and I think finding the right investors are really important. And, you know, there are so many tough lessons to learn along, along those lines and just making sure that I was aligned with investors who were aligned and supportive of my vision and the way I want to build the business and at the pace that I want to build the business at and, you know, with an eye towards profitability, even maybe more so than hyper growth and things like that. And. Not every investor is aligned with that. And I think in the world of venture especially, there's this sort of conditioned thought process around growing as fast as you can, move fast and break things. But that doesn't work for every business. It could maybe work for software. It can maybe work for certain types of business models. But for a consumer company where you're producing a physical product, where the quality bar has to remain high and the customer experience cannot be disrupted, things have to be smooth. Like it just, It, it just requires so much more thoughtfulness. And depending on the category, like home paints really high consideration. It takes you a little longer to learn when you have a longer buyer journey, right? You're not going to get data maybe in 30 days. It might take longer because it sometimes takes longer people longer to buy paint. Learning all of those things required a lot of patience on, on my end as well as our investors end and it gets challenging over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, and what I think that's a really good point is finding investors who are aligned with, I guess, the way you want to grow the business. I mean, what advice do you have for anyone who might be on that journey, you know, meeting with investors, like anything you recommend to them to just kind of make sure they are aligned? Because we have heard similar, not issues, but situations come up, like you mentioned.
1: Yeah, it's hard because sometimes companies are in a position where you just need the money, right? You have to keep going. It's a tough spot to be in. Not everyone always has the luxury to pick and choose their investors. And in the beginning, I didn't even know that I should have put more diligence into it. I just sort of said, these people invested in all of these amazing companies. They must know what they're talking about. They must be great partners. And many of them are. But at the end of the day, I think I I learned a lot through the early stages of working with investors and really understanding what their expectations were and what they were really investing in and so I'd say like to the extent that you have the privilege to pick into your investors sure. make do just as much diligence on on them as they are doing yeah. on you, right? You, investors will spend so much time combing through your financials and your model and your cohort data and all these different things to make sure that they're making a smart bet. You should do the same as a founder. grow them on their positions on, you know, whatever is important to your business. Make sure there's alignment there. Again, bet on yourself. Be afraid to walk away from a deal if it doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. It, that's key and again not a luxury everyone has but to the extent that you are in that position where you have multiple options like choose the partner that will really add the most value for your business over the best deal on paper because I think Mm. that matters more
0: Yeah, that's key. And also, you know, doing like you mentioned, doing the due diligence on them and reaching out to other companies that they invested in and the founders and just really asking questions like you said, they're doing it to you. So you should do the same thing back to them because it's essentially like a marriage you're getting into for a very long period of time. So I think that's all really key. And, you know, one thing that I think you did a really good job. And I think a lot of it came from your experience in PR. You know, when you are raising for an early stage business where you don't really have the revenue yet in place, you know, it's all about storytelling and who you are. And I think you've really mastered that. You know, is there any tips or things that you would share with our audience when it comes to being a, a great storyteller? Because I think that serves well in every aspect of your life, from hiring to raising money to just marketing and building awareness for your company. So I'd love to hear your thoughts as someone who's an expert in storytelling.
1: Yeah, I think the, the way that you position yourself, your brand, your company, there's a common thread through everything that you talk, talked about, whether it's fundraising, hiring, how you speak to your customers being able to connect with someone and almost like motivate and influence them, right? Without saying invest in my company or come work for me or buy my product. It's about telling a story in a way that people can connect to and be inspired by. I think there's a little bit of an art to it. It probably doesn't come naturally to everyone, but it is so, so important. I wish I could like develop a course or figure out how to teach people the art of storytelling. I'll definitely try to put more thought around, thought into that at some yeah. point. But I think it's really about, you know, it's almost like with a product, right? Don't necessarily talk about the benefits, talk about how it's going to make you feel. Talk about the outcome, mm-hmm. right? Like those are the things that really matter. And it's almost like you kind of have to tell that same story. So if, you, if you're looking for some just basic pointers, focus on telling the story of the problem that you're solving versus like, and benefits of your company, right? If you speak from that perspective, customers who go to buy paint don't have an easy way to choose a color, get everything they need. It requires multiple trips back and forth to the store. You know, setting painting a picture—no pun intended—I <laughs> love that. Of, you know, of like how the journey is currently, and then what the journey will look like when your company enters the the market, right? I think things along those lines will really help put it in perspective in a way that feels like a narrative right that people can really like get hooked on it's almost like a really good tv show and they they hook you in the first five minutes right you kind of kind of need to do that with how you set up your story and your problem yeah. Well,
0: when you do that course one day, maybe post Claire, mm-hmm. I'll definitely be one of the uh, customers. I think there's such an art that I'm so fascinated about when it comes to storytelling. And I really admire people and companies and movies who do it really well because I think it's so important. And I'm curious, you know, how much of the story storytelling or brand awareness is important to talk about you yourself as a founder, like showing up as the person behind the brand? Do you find that important
1: in your own journey? It's super important. And I think you'll hear a lot of investors talk about founder market fit, right? Because there's product market fit, but then there's like sort of like the founder company fit. Like why are you the person well-equipped to build a paint brand, right? Or why are you the person Mm -hmm. equipped to build a company in the maternity space, right? Or whatever it is, it's making sure that you have the right background and expertise. And I think like there's a lot of founders and and there's no knock on them because I think many of them have gone into both wonderful businesses, but there's a lot of founders who don't come from the Context of whatever the business is that they're building. And they come in as an outsider, like, whoa, one day I had a really tough time finding this one thing. So I decided to start a company. And that's great. But I think I've even talked to founders who, who have established businesses in that way. And they feel sometimes at a disadvantage because they don't have that deep market expertise. So I think it behooves you to be a, a real subject matter expert in whatever it is you're trying to do. And I think one of the things that investors look for is a founder who knows their market inside and out and knows their industry inside and out because that's going to give them a competitive advantage. So I think when founder, when investors are evaluating founders, that is something that's key to sort of what they look for. And when I hear investors, sometimes I'll just pick their brains about companies they didn't invest in. And a lot of the times it's not the business model. It's like, oh, the founder just wasn't compelling enough. I didn't understand why they were the one behind this business and it just wasn't making sure that you you really are an important piece of your secret sauce i think is is key is
0: key yeah absolutely and you know i'm curious as you're built starting this business and building this business now a few years in you know as a solo founder i can't imagine it being an easy journey and you know thinking about that first year in business you know we're my own business i'm 4 or 5 months in and we ha- i have a co-founder that i'm very lucky to have and it's still hard so i just think about someone in your position how did you really go through just you know the tough moments of building a business from scratch like did you build a community like how did you find
1: your resources to support you at that time and now it is so hard and i i still think i'm building that community i, I do have yeah. a handful of network with a few founder friends that i'm close to but it is hard especially because i i didn't like a lot of people who start companies they go to hbs right they fit that yeah. check that box and like half their class started businesses too and they have this immediate connection of community of people who are all starting companies together, right? I didn't have that. And no one in my personal life was this type of entrepreneur trying to build a high growth company. I did have to really kind of seek that out and build it. Um, you know, I think luckily through investor networks, I was able to meet a lot of people, a lot of, I mean, in the VC world, maybe less so during the pandemic, but there were a lot of dinners and a lot of like networking things and, you know, female founder groups. And, you, know, you get invited to one, you might meet someone and you know, but I, I put myself out there a lot too, going to a lot of these dinners and I'm very like I'm an introvert, so I don't love going to big group things all the time.
0: Yeah.
1: It's exhausting. But a lot of times I would push myself to go because I'm like, I might meet a new founder friend or I might, you know, connect with someone. And so I think, yeah, just through kind of going to events, being involved in the founder circle or connecting with other investors in portfolios. Like I just reached out to someone on LinkedIn the other day who just responded back and Cause I realized we share the same investor and wanted to just kind of get to know them. So um, those are the kinds of conversations that lead to great relationships and people who become a part of that support network. Cause I feel like as a founder, you need a support system. It's like, <laughs> it's like yes. a, something you cannot thrive without a support system. And you know, as a founder, it is so challenging. There's so many, it's just so much harder than building any other type of business.
0: And you're not expected to know everything. So, if you're able to reach out to people and pick their brains, and I just love that you're doing that because, you know, there's so many people that might be sitting there thinking, I don't have that network going to Harvard Business School. I don't know anybody in my town. There's no entrepreneurs. And it just, you know, you can put yourself out there. Luckily, we have linked social media, right? Instagram DMs, LinkedIn. I mean, this podcast came from just DMs on Instagram. You just never know where those kind of conversations can take you. And it just helps you in the long term marathon, right? Like every day you're solving problems. So, if you're able to, to kind of lean on someone who can help a little bit like it just makes experience way more enjoyable than you just sitting there in your office trying to figure out everything yourself so yeah. it's great to hear your journey through that as well yeah
1: and one other kind of thing along with that point is that you're never going to have all the answers whether you're a founder or an employee at a startup right I go through this all the time as I'm approaching like coaching team members You can't be afraid of what you don't know. There are so many things that I don't know. As a (laughs) first-time CEO, building a paint company for the first time, I don't have all the answers. And I think being really confident in what you know and confident in what you don't know, not being afraid to ask for help, not being Mm -hmm. afraid of feedback. Feedback is a gift. If you don't get it, you're not going to get better. I think that is so important. You You have to be okay with being vulnerable, asking for help. You know, you may be more comfortable asking someone over here for help versus someone over there, but just the point is you just got to ask for that help and fill those gaps because otherwise you're, you're putting yourself, your team, your company, everyone at a disadvantage just trying to follow your way through it.
0: Totally. And it's funny, that actually reminds me, we had another founder on the podcast. She did go, you know, she had all the credentials. She went to Harvard undergrad, Harvard business school. And when she launched her business, she was saying, you know, I felt embarrassed to ask. Like One of the biggest mistakes was she just felt like, you know, I have all this amazing pedigree. Like, I don't want to ask these simple questions because she felt like she might look stupid. And she looks back and she's like, that's the biggest mistake I did in building the business. Like nobody has the right answers. You're not expected to know everything. So it's just a matter of finding the right people or, you know, brainstorming with your team, but not really feeling like you're expected to know everything. Cause that's
1: a lot of, that gets anxiety producing too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I can't think of a single instance where someone asked me a question and I thought they were stupid, honestly, especially if you're asking really smart, critical questions. I think that's more of a sign of intelligence that you want to get it right. That you're, you know, like high performing people are generally very curious and ask lots of it. questions. And I love, I love that.
0: Yeah, I know. And I've noticed that just, we we don't have anyone full-time. We have a bunch of contractors, but the people who are really engaged in our business are asking questions all the time. And I love it. It's like, they're naturally curious. They're asking all the right questions. So I think that's a big characteristic when it, in terms of like hiring and finding the right fit that I've seen so far, yeah. you know, and, and one thing I'm curious about, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, and it's something I'm thinking quite a bit about, you know, the whole concept. I don't love the term work-life balance, but how do you kind of, remain present in life outside of work if not even exists or you know what
1: is what does that look like for you it is so hard especially being so a solo founder mm-hmm. i don't have much life outside of work it's so, so terrible and so sad this is the truth yeah and i think this is probably like unpopular opinion but i think it's okay to not have work life balance occasionally right like it should ebb and flow you can't never have balance right I'll, so I'll go through really high periods of intensity where I'm like barely sleeping and I'm working crazy hours, but then I might get blessed with a lull where I can kind of relax a little and maybe even take a vacation and not feel so frazzled and crazed. Unfortunately, too, the way the world works is like sometimes when it rains, it pours. Like when when, when one thing goes wrong, usually there's like <laughs> yes. things go wrong too. And so usually there's this layered on shit show pile of things going wrong. <laughs> And that's just how it rolls. And when those moments happen, you're you're all in. And you know, hopefully, when things are smoother, you've got breathing room. And someone else kind of described the startup journey like that too. It's going to ebb and flow. It's not going to always be insane. And you know, also like the more that you can build a strong team that you trust, as a founder, you'll be able to get yourself a little bit out of the weeds. And you're still going to have a million things to do and a million problems to solve, but to the extent that you can spread the, (laughs) the responsibility and and have people take stuff off your plate. I think that that helps. And I'm just now at a point where I'm really hiring seasoned leaders to take ownership of different areas of the business and get myself out of the weeds of doing everything. Cause as an entrepreneur too, you, you go through phases of your involvement in your company, right? Like, In the beginning, you're doing everything. And then you got to like give away the Legos and like be more strategic and then focus on the next horizon and kind of go through these these phases. And so another kind of key thing is you can't be afraid to evolve, afraid to change because startups change and they change really fast.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, like you were saying, hiring seasoned leaders at that point, right? I mean, you're obviously been in business a little bit longer, so your company's at that scale. And being comfortable giving away. I mean, I know there's a lot of founders that feel like nobody can do as well as them. And I feel like those founders are just holding themselves back from growth and more opportunity. So being okay with finding someone and really giving them the ownership to lead something
1: yeah. really takes like good hiring. Yeah. And I'm still getting there. I haven't given up all yeah. the Legos yet. You know, I'm working on it. <laughs> We're getting better. But it's like- yeah it's just part of the process. It's normal. Yeah.
0: And do you have any, you know, as someone who, I don't know if there's any tips you have or any mistakes you've made when it, when it came to hiring, especially in those early days, right? Like those one, two, three, four members are so critical when you're so small and scrappy, like any mistakes that you made at the time that you wish you knew when you were
1: initially hiring? Yeah. Never make a desperate hire. I think there can feel when you have a, Absence on your team, you could feel so much pressure, especially when you can see all the things that are not getting done. There could be a tremendous amount of pressure to just get anyone in the room and fill that role with anyone. But the people that you choose to work in your company can literally make or break your success. I heard someone Mm -hmm. describe this the other day of like, you hire a B player, right? They're gonna hire probably C players because a B player probably isn't gonna be confident enough to hire someone who's smarter than them, right? Which is what we should all be doing all the time. And so then you end up with a team of B and C players and that's not going to get you far. Like startups are competitive. Generally, whatever you're doing, there are other, there's other competition in your market. You have to be able to execute. And so I've really, over time, A, gotten better at building a hiring process. B, we have the resources now where I can afford to hire top, top talent. But also, even despite what your resources are, your goal should always be to hire the highest performing, best possible candidates you can, because that will help you move your business forward. And it's better to have a hole or an absence on your team than to have the wrong fit. Having the wrong person in the role is incredibly time consuming. Sometimes Mm. it can be toxic to your company culture. Don't make hasty hiring decisions. Be really, really thoughtful about who you bring into that room.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, it's time consuming in terms of just hiring and finding somebody to replace them, but also mentally, right. It's like, it doesn't give you peace of mind when you're thinking about this one person who's not the right fit, who's affecting everybody else. So I'm sure there's words of wisdom from what you shared that is very, very helpful. So I appreciate that. And, you know, Nicole, I mean, I want to close on a question, like what's next for you, whether it's Nicole, yourself or Claire, like, what are you looking forward to in the next weather year or month in the business or even with the holidays? Well,
1: I mean, I, there's so much that I can't talk about, sadly, but it's yes, <laughs> exciting time, you know, we are yeah. embarking on a kind of a new phase of growth, which is so exciting. Yeah. A lot of new team members that I'm so excited about that are enthusiastic, high performers who add value and you know we're focused on evolving our product assortments so we'll be launching a lot of new things in the new year we are you know looking at new distribution channels and really just kind of uh, about to really accelerate our growth and put a ton more energy into our marketing efforts and so there's a lot a lot to be a lot excited. going on
0: yeah. yeah, well, I'm excited. We just moved into a new place. I'll be all things clear soon, and we still have to paint some walls. So I'm excited to dig into it. But Nicole, thank you so much for spending the time with us and sharing your story. It was such an honor to meet you and have you here. Thanks for having me on. It was
1: so nice having you